All right, have a seat, please, and thank you again for coming out. We're in our third week of our four-week series uh, entitled Things We Want to Talk About. We talked about unforgiveness in the first week, and then last week was uh, what Christians should think about Israel in particular, the uh, recent attacks. This week, we're going to talk about the difficult doctrine of hell, and then next week will be our final week, and we're going to look at biblical counseling in the life of the church. And uh, what should it look like and who needs it? I think basically all of us. And how should we think about it as a church? You can find these online. Uh, if you missed a couple of the last sessions and you want to think about maybe Israel or something, you can find that online and we're, we're recording this and taping it as well. All right, a couple introductory thoughts. I just want to posture us. You know, I admit that um, uh, this is not a pleasant thing to talk about. In fact, uh, for the past, past couple of days as I've been reading about this and studying it, in more depth, it's just been not uh, uh, super enjoyable to think about the, the weighty issue of hell and, and judgment. But it is important because, and you can see my notes there, uh, letter A under reason number one, or introductory thoughts number one, is that the Bible talks about it a lot. I think some Christians may not think that's the case or may not be aware of that, but the Bible talks about it a lot, and therefore we should talk about it appropriately. Uh, I think of Acts chapter 20 when the Apostle Paul is towards the end of his life and he has planted the church in Ephesus and he is now leaving Timothy to shepherd the church in Ephesus and that's what kind of comes to the letters 1st and 2nd Timothy are Paul writing to Timothy as he's pastoring this church in Ephesus and the letter to Ephesus is to this group of people that in Acts chapter 20 he gathers these Ephesian elders and he says, listen, I didn't shrink from sharing with you the whole counsel of God's word because there's fierce wolves that are going to come. And so one of the things that we hopefully have been about as a church and we, we need to continue to be is to not shrink away from difficult aspects of doctrine. We want to be people that teach and expose ourselves and humble ourselves to the whole counsel of God, even the parts that are challenging. Secondly, our secular, our secular age despises thoughts of eternity, and, I, and I'm particularly burdened for young people in our church who are growing up that are just bombarded with uh, the, sort of the theology of TikTok and maybe, you know, hashtags like FOMO, for, uh, fear of missing out, as if everything is here and now, or hashtag YOLO, you only live once. All of it, if we're not careful, if we don't ballast ourselves with a good doctrine of eternity and judgment and hell and heaven, we, we can buy into or we can drink, the, we can imbibe in the, 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 the polluted waters of the culture and it shapes us and it, it can kind of make us Christians who may have a confession, but in reality our heart's posture is one where we think that this life is all there is to it. And uh, so I want to counter that. I think all generations are susceptible to that. But I think, I think that, uh, that sort of YOLO, FOMO, TikTok, false theology, young people are especially prone to it because they're inundated with it. And then the importance of it, obviously, is that souls are at stake. These are important issues. And eternity at stake. Hell is one half of eternity. And so souls are at stake in understanding this doctrine well. I think of the verse in Jude that we read oftentimes for a benediction that says, save some from the fire by snatching them from the fire. Save some by fear by snatching them. So um, sometimes we have this kind of anti-fear posture as if 
uh, that's a, a bad thing, but the Bible uses a chastening and an appropriate kind of fear to rescue us from destruction, so souls are at stake. Secondly, uh, not only in the importance of understanding hell, but just the importance of our posture. Uh, I, I think I say this often, but it is especially true tonight that of all the doctrines, this is not just something merely theoretical or academic uh, or, or, or that should never really be thought of in a kind of luxury sort of way. Uh, th- these are immensely sober. This is an immensely sobering truth, and we should approach the the idea of hell, the truth of hell, the doctrine of hell, and the reality of eternal judgment with a somber humility and, and with the parts of the doctrine that are very challenging to us, even people who would confess that we believe the Bible and we believe that God has every right to do whatever he wants to do and we believe the Bible for what it says and what it teaches us, even then I think we need to admit that we have in our flesh, in our humanity, in our weaknesses, and our frailties, we all have a, a certain, at times, kind of objection to these things. And that's understandable. I think we all understand that. Let's not deny that. But let's, let's make the conscious decision as best we can to subordinate that under the Word of God. So just think of Isaiah 55, 6-7. It says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon, him, call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Even there, eternities in view, the, the wicked and the, the righteous and the unrighteous. Listen to this, though. Here's the thought that I want to put in your mind. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. This is the Lord speaking through Isaiah. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So just think about the the immense, the immeasurable gap between the understanding and the thoughts and the ways of the Lord and our ability to comprehend them. Yes, he has condescended to us. Yes, he has humbled himself and made himself able to be known, but certainly not known exhaustively. And so we need to understand and humble ourselves in light of that truth. And then I think of Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God Here's the phrase, how unsearchable, or another, another version says, I like this word, how unscrutable, or it's right, it's right there, actually, it's, I'm, I'm reading, I'm getting ahead of myself, it's in this version, so this version is the version that you should be reading, how unsearchable, how unsearchable are his judgments, and here's the word I was looking for, how inscrutable his ways, so think about that word inscrutable, God can't be scrutinized, you know, he can't be challenged. Think of, uh, think of Romeo and Juliet challenging Shakespeare. Well, they can't because they were created by Shakespeare. He, they're part of the play. And in a sense, um, did I say something wrong? I don't know, Shakespeare, but you get the, you get the uh, idea. The inscrutability of God is something that we need to humble ourselves under. So what does the Bible teach about hell? Five biblical aspects. I'm going to move through these relatively quickly without much comment. And I really want to spend some time actually reading these verses because I think the, the Bible is clearly powerful. It's living and active and sharp. It's, the, it's inspired by God. It's inerrant and it's, it has his authority. And so I think it's helpful for us to actually just 
uh, hear these verses that I think support these five biblical aspects. This comes from a book called What is Hell? You can see on the back from uh, some uh, theologians named Christopher Morgan and Robert Peterson. First hell is, is punishment. So this is Jesus at the end of the Gospel of Matthew talking about this famous um, scene of the sheep and the goats. Jesus speaking of judgment and eternity. He says, when the, and his return, this is speaking of Jesus' return. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as, shep- as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep, sheep meaning believers, regenerate, the Christians, on his right, but the goats, the unregenerate, on the left. So again, when we talk about how there are only two types of people in the world, Adam and in Christ, you know, sheep and goats, Christians and non-Christians. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink, and I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see, see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of, these, of my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will, there's a lot in there that we can unpack, but we're zeroing in on this just to think about this idea of hell as punishment. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So it's not just for the devil and his angels, but it's also for those, the goats, the unregenerate. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not, did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these, verse 46, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, I just want to make a note here. That's a, that's a severe passage and scene. And Jesus, all throughout the Gospels, often speaks of judgment in hell. In fact, I think most sort of cultural Christians or people that have just mild contact with Christianity that would consider themselves Christians but aren't very familiar with the Bible would be shocked to realize how often Jesus references judgment, eternity, and hell. And then the Apostle Paul to the, Corinthian, to the Thessalonian church. This is an important text. This is the evidence, 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 5 through 10. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay the affliction with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believe because, of our, because our testimony to you was believed. Well, 
Uh, there's a lot going on there, obviously. I think that the Second Thessalonians chapter 1 is one of the clearest and simplistic visions of the return of Christ. I think there's one return of Christ, and he comes, and that's the judgment. Everything happens then. It's boom, and, and, and those that are with him uh, go on to eternal life, and those that are outside of Christ suffer eternal judgment, punishment. So hell is punishment. Hell is also destruction. Now we're going to talk a little bit more about what destruction is maybe in a bit, but Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. So he's referencing destruction. John 3.16, maybe the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Or be destroyed is another way of thinking about that. Romans 9.22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? So hell is not just punishment, but it's destruction. And I don't think that destruction, I think this is the by far the majority opinion of Christians through the ages and biblical scholars through the ages, is that destruction does not mean ceasing to exist, but a destruction of of all that is, you know, any opportunity, any good in your life. And so hell is not ceasing to exist. Uh, we'll talk maybe about objections to that a little bit later on, but it, is, it has to do with not your existence, but with quality. Hell is banishment. Famous verse in uh, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Um, I am... Here it is. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. And here's how Jesus describes it here. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So it's the, that judgment day. Depart from me. Go away. It's a banishment. Revelation 22, verse 15 Speaking of inside and outside the city of judgment, of eternity, he says in verse 15, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So there's this inside and outside. Again, the idea is that hell is a banishment. And clearly, I think this goes without saying, but it's just good for our souls to actually read these verses. Hell is a place of suffering. Matthew 8. Uh, verse 12, Jesus speaking, he's talking about the sons of the kingdom, meaning the false kingdom, will be th meaning, meaning unbelieving Jews, will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13, verse 42, talks about Jesus speaking, they'll be thrown into the fiery furnace, speaking of those outside of Christ on the judgment day. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mark 9, 40, 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter life crippled than with two hands to go into hell to the unquenchable fire. And in verse 48 of Mark 9, Jesus describes hell as a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's a place of extreme suffering from Jesus' description. Jude, verse 13, just one chapter, wild waves of the sea, speaking of those that are cast into judgment, Casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. 
So hell is a place of suffering. And then also hell, and I think this mitigates against the view that uh, hell, that, that destruction is a ceasing to exist because there are many, many verses that speak about the eternality of hell. Hell is eternal. We just read from Matthew 25. Jesus says there, he will say to those on the left, verse 41, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jude 1, verse 7, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Revelation 10 speaks of, again, God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Revelation 14, verse 10, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast in its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Now, I don't want to get into the mark of the beast here, but honestly, I, I think many Christians have gotten very, very um, in the weeds about that. I think ultimately that's, a, that's an analogy of just unbelief. And so the point here is that the, the goats, people that, are, that, that ultimately don't worship the Lord, uh, have... They, they suffer this torment that goes up forever and ever. And then Revelation 20, verse 10, and it's almost just, I'll stop reading because it's just, it can just almost be too much. It speaks of the devil who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beasts and the false prophets were, and there, there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So you can see just a five, those aren't all the things that the Bible says about hell, but I think that's a good summary by these two scholars in their book, What is Hell? Hell's punishment, hell's destruction, it's banishment, it's a place of suffering, and it is eternal. These are just sort of biblical facts about hell. A question that sometimes people ask, are the biblical descriptions of hell literal or metaphorical? I don't know. Um, I think sometimes they're literal and sometimes they're metaphorical. I, 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 I don't think it's that important of a question, but I do think that, I think it's an important question, but where, where you are in that spectrum, I don't think is that important to sort of Christian faithfulness. But I will say that oftentimes in ancient literature or just in literature in general, a metaphor is pointing to something and the reality is actually much more intense than the metaphor. And so if you say, for example, um, you know, my, 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 my loved one, my wife or my husband is like to me like a diamond, as valuable as a diamond. Well, that's a metaphor, but actually that person that you love, you love with them with much more intensity than just a diamond. And so uh, if there's any sense in us that, oh, well, you know, hell's not that bad. This is just sort of ancient, first century, uneducated literature from some people who were intense and hyperbolic. I mean, have you ever heard Paul? Have you read Paul? I mean, the guy was a little, he was a little much, and maybe he's just kind of going a little too far with the metaphor. Um, I don't think that's the case. Uh, I think oftentimes, first of all, a good understanding of the inspiration of Scripture tells us that regardless of the personality or the education of anybody that wrote the Bible, it's what God intended them to write. And any metaphor that the Bible uses um, is intending to describe something that I think, in a sense, God is condescending, just as heaven is more glorious than we can imagine. I suspect that the metaphors of hell are only giving us a picture of something that is actually far more, far more 
uh, uh, horrible than we can imagine, which I think uh, accords with the glory of God in the Bible. A few related words and concepts, and then a, few, a summary, and then we'll get to the back page here with um, just kind of answering some questions and objections. Sometimes you hear the word sheol. That's a Hebrew word. What's interesting about the concept of hell is that it's pretty underdeveloped in the Old Testament. In fact, uh, the, you really don't get uh, the doctrine of hell. Maybe Daniel chapter 12, the beginning of it, talks about a judgment and, and, and eternity and wickedness. being. But, but the doctrine of hell, as we understand it as New Covenant Christians, is pretty much like 98% of it's developed in the New Testament, which of course is all we need. That doesn't bother me at all. It's just something for you to know because sometimes you'll read the word sheol, which is a Hebrew word, an Old Testament term, and it's really not, sometimes we read into that our New Testament doctrine of hell, and at times we can do that contextually in an okay way in the Old Testament, but sometimes, in fact, often the word sheol is just talking about this Hebrew, very cloudy understanding and by cloudy, I'm not saying wrong, just not yet fully formed in a new covenant sense, understanding of death. And it was just a, a term described to, to sort of life after death. And there just wasn't much attention given to uh, hell in the Old Testament. Similarly, the word Hades in the New Testament is a Greek word in the New Testament that is used similarly to Sheol. Uh, except only one time is it used in Luke chapter 16, verse 23, which we read, which where Jesus is actually speaking about what we would think of as hell. All other instances indicate nothing more than a place of the dead in the New Testament. Unfortunately, well, let me stop there, and I'm going to keep going, and I'm going to circle back around to Hades. Gehenna is a Greek word that is the transliteration of the Hebrew word uh, or the Hebrew place, the Valley of Hinnom in the Old Testament. And it was an actual physical place outside of Jerusalem, which was a place of abomination where dead bodies and garbage were being burned. And basically there was a continual burning going on in this particular valley. It was a place where child sacrifice happened. It was a place of great wickedness. And so there was a continual fire, basically burning the refuse and the garbage and the dead bones. And so... This word becomes kind of used because it's, it's a word to describe this particular place in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the Greek word, they used it to describe this place of judgment and death because that's what the physical picture of this Old Testament valley meant. And so most of the time in the New Testament, when what we think of as the word hell or the place hell, Gehenna is the word that is used almost exclusively unless Jesus or Paul or the other uh, Bible writers are, are talking about it in descriptive forms. If they're using the word hell, if you see the word hell in the New Testament, uh, in a good translation, uh, it is probably the word Gehenna. Unfortunately, and I know I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step on some of my King James lover toes here tonight. Unfortunately, uh, the word Hades uh, by the King James translators... 1600 or whenever that was, 1611, they conflated the word Hades and Gehenna, and they basically made both of those words, they just translated them both hell, when there's kind of a distinction between the two. And so I think in the King James Version, at least older versions of the King James Version, um, the one that Jesus apparently used back when he spoke English and spoke King James Version, I'm sorry, that was a crack, um, that, that, uh, 
they, they kind of confused uh, people with uh, the doctrine of hell a little bit because they, they took the concept of just the afterlife and used the word hell there. So if you're using it, I just say that to say if you're using a King James Version, um, just be aware that all the time that the word hell might show up in your Bible might not be uh, speaking of the, the place of actual punishment, destruction, banishment, suffering, and eternal. That's why I think a, a good modern translation like the ESV or the NASB is probably better for you to study from. Fourthly, uh, a related word and concept, Abraham's bosom um, is, uh, is a figure of speech used by Jesus in the parables in Luke chapter 16. Um, some people have gotten really wrapped around the axle to that. I think it was just a figure of speech that Jesus was using in this parable, which we'll read in a bit, which is just speaking about heaven. And it's talking about how the patriarchs, Jesus was just imagining in this parable, the patriarchs, um, you know, welcoming in this parable, uh, this, this poor man to heaven. So don't make, don't, don't um, read more significance into that. I think it was just a colloquial figure of speech used by Jesus in the parable. And then purgatory. Purgatory is the unbiblical, and I stress unbiblical, the very unbiblical, and quite frankly, very harmful Catholic doctrine that has developed over centuries, primarily from apocryphal literature. And what's the apocrypha? It's, so you got, we got our Bible, Genesis to Malachi is the Old Testament. And then there's a 400 years of silence. And then we have Matthew to um, Revelation. So we have 66 books of the Bible. We have 39 Old Testament books. And then we have 20... Seven New Testament books. Is that right, uh, Arabella? Um, and so she was nodding her head, so that gave me some confidence. Um, and there's this intertestamental period where the Jewish people in their uh, uh, exile and, and uh, dispersion did write. There was much literature, much history of, of the nation of Israel. And what you may know of as you hear the word apocrypha, which if you have a Catholic friend or if you grew up Catholic, the Catholic Bible and I say that with an asterisk, includes this literature during that, that, that period between the Testaments. And much of it is very helpful literature. Much of it is actually historical accounting of the history of, of the Jewish people during that time, and we can learn from it. But it was never considered inspired scripture by first century Jews, not by Jesus, not by the early church. Not until centuries later did it start to creep in and be used as authoritative scripture wrongly, I think, by the church as it grew, which became eventually the Imperial Church of Rome. And why I sort of uh, labor to explain that to you is there is a story in one of those apocryphal books, 2 Maccabees in particular, uh, that speaks of this battle of Jewish people where these soldiers were killed. And there's this reference to this Jewish military leader taking the dead bodies of these Jewish uh, soldiers that were fighting for Israel during this time, and there's some allusion to prayers being offered for these deceased soldiers on the battlefield and the possibility of something maybe good happening to them. Which then, and I'm not being overly critical of the Catholic Church here, because I don't, I, don't, I, I think, you know, I, I love Catholics, I grew up around Catholics, I grew up around primary Catholics, but if you believe Catholic doctrine, it is a false doctrine. It's not a saving understanding of the gospel. I'm not saying that there aren't truly the Lord's people that still attend the Catholic Church. 
I'm just saying that this is a destructive doctrine purgatory is. And it developed into the medieval ages and into the time of the Reformation. And the whole concept of purgatory is one of the things that set off the Protestant Reformation because Martin Luther, as a Catholic monk in Germany, was, uh, was heard this German sort of uh, 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 fundraiser named Tetzel who was coming through Germany and he was using the Catholic doctrine of purgatory that somehow you could pray or some works that the living could do in their lifetime to somehow benefit their ancestors that had died, that he was actually using this Catholic doctrine of purgatory and giving to the building of the basilica in Rome, the, the, the big cathedral in Rome, as motivation to give to this building project. And he had this famous verse where he says, when a, when a, when, when the, when a copper coin in the bowl uh, rings, meaning if you give to the church, meaning you're good, you're indulgence, the good thing that you, when a, when a copper coin in the soul rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And so he was using sort of like manipulative guilt, using the doctrine of purgatory uh, to actually, uh, you know, produce money for the building. And that, that was one of the things that lit uh, Luther on fire. And it all really comes from, it has roots in this really unbiblical doctrine. And so I, I, I sort of labor that point to say purgatory is an unbiblical doctrine. There is, there is no middle ground you're either alive or you're dead. And then at death, after we'll get to Hebrews chapter 9, is appointed on all men to die, and after that comes the judgment. And even if it's not the ultimate judgment, there's a personal judgment, a personal eschatology. We die, we go, we stand before the Lord. We either are with him or we, we have him. We are covered by Christ or we're not. We are, either, uh, we, we are either ushered into eternity with Christ or eternity apart from him. And there is no opportunity for a postpartum conversion or being sprung from any judgment. And I think that's really, really important. Uh, recently, uh, 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 well, within the past 10 years or so, a very famous pastor um, who uh, pastored a church up in Michigan, his name was Rob Bell. Uh, he wrote a, a popular book called Love Wins. And when he planted his church maybe 20, 25 years ago, I think he was basically evangelical and had a relatively faithful understanding of the gospel and doctrine. But over the course of time, he just began to drift more and more liberal and eventually wrote this book, Love Wins, which uh, was advocating a kind of universalism or I think in times a kind of second... He was postulating about the possibility of post-mortem or post-death salvation. And the Bible just does not go there at all in any way, and that is a heretical view. And I'm going to read uh, a little bit from Luke chapter... Well, let me, re let me read it now. Luke chapter 16, um, verse 19 through 31, which gives us this picture. It's where Abraham's bosom is mentioned, and it also refutes this idea of purgatory. So Luke 16, it'll be on the screen. This is a parable that Jesus gives. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. This is no relation to the Lazarus that Jesus raised. Just, Jesus is just given a parable here. This is a, there was a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, meaning Abraham's bosom or, you know, heaven. Uh, 
The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up. And that's the only place that that word Hades is, is actually referring to, uh, you know, hell as we know it biblically. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So here's the, so here's the picture. You have the poor man in heaven and they have the rich man in hell. And it's like he's getting this picture and he sees Abraham and, this, and Lazarus at Abraham's side in heaven. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus, so Lazarus is already dead and the rich man's dead. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. So he's basically saying, man, turn down the heat. Make it easier for me. Give me, give me a second chance to just relieve the, the torment. But Abraham said, child, Remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those would pass, who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. In other words, eternity's fixed at the moment of death. And he said... Now, this is back to the, the, the rich man in anguish in hell in Hades. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, oh, They have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have the Bible. They have the word of God. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So in other words, if you don't believe the Bible that you have, even if somebody raises from the dead, you're not going to believe. Uh, the, the, that's a wonderful testimony to the power of the word of God. But you see that even in this parable, uh, Jesus is, is, is clearly entrenching the, the fixated nature of life after death. It is, there's no more second chances. Um, so that, that's important. So a summary. Um, I think we should just note that every New Testament author mentions hell, some frequently, and Jesus references it, it often. I just put a, just, a very, just a sprinkling of verses. Quite frankly, I read all of the verses in all of the theology books that I, I kind of consulted for the past couple of days. I just sort of made myself read all of the verses that were referenced in all these sections, and it was enormous. I mean, in each of these five aspects of, of, of hell there from under letter A. I mean, I could have put maybe, you know, eight to ten more verses that reference it all across the New Testament. The, the, the enormity of the biblical witness of the, of the reality of eternity and judgment is immense. And the Bible is utterly clear that you are either in Christ or you're outside of Christ. To be in Christ at death is to be with him forever, and to be outside of Christ at death is to be separated from him for eternity. Okay, let's flip the page. Why is hell necessary? Now we're going to get into a little bit more, just some, some, some more kind of wrestling with the practicality and the, um, the, the, the emotional aspects of this doctrine. Why is hell necessary? Well, in a positive sense, it satisfies our inward sense of the need for ultimate justice. I think that even people that do not believe in God or the Bible or the gospel, 
that we all have a law. Romans 2 talks about how all mankind has a law written on our hearts. And we all, just the fact that we all want justice for evil or wrongs done to us or just in general is a kind of evidence that we all long for justice. And hell is God's ultimate justice. Secondly, why is hell necessary? Well, it, it enables us to forgive others. And this really piggybacks onto what we talked in the about in the first week. It, we can release vengeance to the Lord. Romans 12, 19 says, Paul says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So no sin goes unpunished. It is either poured out on Christ on the cross, and he satisfies the wrath of God. Christ is either punished for our sins or we are punished for our sins. And so when we know that, when even the most wicked thing that's been done to us, we can, we can release our, our desire for vengeance because we know that the Lord will ultimately bring justice. Either that person will face it themselves or even heinous crimes that have been committed against us by other Christians, Christ has satisfied that. And what right do we have to bring something back up that Jesus has forgiven and removed as far as the east is from the west from the person, even those who have wounded us grievously, if they're Christians. Thirdly, it provides motivation for, for righteous living. Uh, often, I mean, think about the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, Matthew 6, 20, talks about store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So there, we, there's a whole, we could build out a whole theology of how just the whole eschatological or the focus on eternity, the focus on the end, which is actually the beginning in a biblical sense, that the whole New Testament is focused on not living for now, but for then. And so the idea that we want to avoid hell and spend eternity with Christ, that may not be our primary motivation. We want to enjoy God and love God because we love Him. We don't want to merely escape. We don't want to just get fire insurance like we sometimes here pejoratively said, but it does, it does provide a motivation on some level. Uh, in a sense, if heaven is the goal, hell is the prod. And we, we, we go, we, we, we want to live for the Lord. We want to live for heaven, and we don't want to go anywhere else. Fourthly, it provides motivation for evangelism. Second um, Peter chapter 3, verse 9, I think I have that verse written down um, somewhere. Uh, yes, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish. And that's a, man, that, that's, a, that's a beautiful verse there. Uh, there's a lot I could say about that. Maybe we'll bring it up later. But not wishing that any should perish. So even though this doctrine is, is something that the Lord has ordained and, in a sense, created, he doesn't want anybody to go there, but that all should reach repentance. And so we, we, sh we know that the Lord is holding back the return of Christ, for the sake of more people, more of God's people to come to him. So it provides motivation for evangelism. And ultimately, and I'll just say this because we're going to get into this in objections here to, in just a moment. Ultimately, it demonstrates God's glory. Hell exists. Judgment exists. Ultimately, to put on display the glory of God. Okay, two objections. And then our response, and then, uh, then I'll open it up to questions. Uh, the first one is, isn't eternal punishment unjust and disproportional for finite sins? 
And I think that's a common and understandable objection because you might think, okay, um, you know, I recognize how somebody can just be morally, you know, maybe they're not a felon or a murderer or some wicked criminal, but they've disregarded the Lord, and I understand why they need to not be in heaven, but it just seems like for that person who hasn't acknowledged just sort of the -the run-of-the-mill atheist, uh, it just seems like eternal punishment is kind of disproportional for their finite sins. And this is where, and this is, uh, this is where we really need to humble ourselves, because I think we all understand that objection on some level. But the Bible does not start with man's sense of justice and righteousness and relative morality as the center line. The Bible starts with the incomprehensible, immeasurable glory of God. And when we and look, I, I'm not saying this as kind of like a, a hellfire and brimstone preacher. I'm saying this as a, as a fellow wrestler with his doctrine. Is the very nature of this question, in a sense, we tell on ourselves by the nature of this question, and we tell on ourselves that we don't really understand the immensity and the immeasurability of the glory of God, and therefore also the heinousness of of our, what we seem to think, are relatively minor sins. Let me give you just kind of a goofy, a goofy illustration. We all understand that there is a difference between punching your brother and punching your mother. Right? And we're, we're, we're laughing, but if you punch your brother, you know, stop it. But if you punch your mother, <laughs> you might die. <laughs> well, on an infinitely grander scale, so, so you see where, see, where the, see where the offense finds its heinousness because of the, the authority or the dignity of the one against whom it's committed. And, and that's just, I mean, that's a real, I mean, the gap between a sibling and the mother as far as honor that's due, the gap between us and God and us sinning against God is infinitely larger. That's why David says, like in Psalm 51, he says that really interesting phrase, against you and you only have I sinned. Well, geez, David, you murdered a guy. <laughs> I mean, you know, he's feeling kind of bad right now. Um, and, you know, all, this other, all these other ramifications. But David is so, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so absorbed with his sin against the holiness of God. And that's the right biblical orientation. And so, I, I, li- listen, Yes, it is a struggle to understand why an atheist that doesn't seem to be a very bad person on our sort of spectrum of morality would suffer for eternity. But that just belies the fact that I have puny visions of the majesty and holiness of God and puny visions of the heinousness of human rebellion against God and puny visions of the dignity of man and therefore in his rebellion... The, the, the treason of man. We, I, we just can't even imagine the gap between those two things. And it's okay to wrestle with that. But I'm just saying it's okay not to see that fully because we are humans. But that, that's the way the Bible talks about it. And secondly, how could a loving God 
This is related, but I think it's probably the hardest question of all. How could a loving God create people that he knows will reject him and go to hell? Well, similarly, uh, the emphasis of the Bible is never on God sending people to hell. It's on people rejecting God. The culpability for hell, for judgment, is never on God. It's always directed in the Scripture on the human. And, and strikingly, just, just to kind of zoom out for a little bit, because I'm going to re- read a verse from Romans here, which I just find, I think it's the hardest. It, I, I think I've told you this before. I think it's the hardest verse in the Bible. But before I read Romans chapter 9, verses 19 through 23, let me zoom out and say that uh, when Paul's writing Romans, the underlying burden in Romans is not, oh gosh, I've got to talk about some realities here. Hell is one of them. And how am I going to defend God against this notion of hell? How, how, Paul is, Paul's point in Romans ultimately is not explaining to us how God could be just in sending anybody to hell. Rather, it's almost the opposite. It's it, how can God maintain his holiness and have any of us unrighteous sinners, which is the whole world, and save any of us? In other words, how can heaven be populated with anybody and God still be righteous? Basically, the point he's making is he's showing us the stunning grace of the gospel that God righteouses the unrighteous so that they can be with him, the only one that is righteous. It's actually a defense of the fact that God lets anybody in heaven, not why has God sent people to hell. And that's the whole sort of underlying message of of Romans, I think. And then here's what he says. I think this is the most difficult. I, I think this is the hardest passage in the Bible. Paul's defending um, the election, the doctrine of election. And he says in Romans chapter 9, verse 19, he's anticipating the objection. Well, gosh, if, you know, if God, God's in charge here, he knows, why would he create somebody and make that person somehow work in their life or not, not override their stubborn will? All these things that f- creep up in our heart, which are understandable questions, I have them. And Paul says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who, and Paul, Paul doesn't get into a philosophical, theoretical explanation of the goodness of God. He just goes straight to God's glory and God's authority. Verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known, here's the, here's the reason, I think this is the closest thing we get to an answer, why, why, does, why is God even created, why is God even allowed a fall that would result in the need for judgment and hell. Why? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. I think the ultimate answer to the question, which just causes us to just humble ourselves, 
But I want to be very careful here because, because I don't want, I, I know how the devil works, and I know, especially know how he can work in the heart of a young person that's maybe um, grown up in an abusive environment or an unloving situation, and maybe, maybe you see a verse like this, and, and it's like some, some little demon just, just sent to discourage you or sent some flaming dart and says, see, God is like that. He's grumpy, and he's angry, and he's mean, and he's mad. No, that's not it. This isn't the whole picture of salvation. Jesus pleads with unbelieving Jews to come to him, but he says to them, you would not. Jesus says that, you know, we read that verse in Peter, that he wished that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And there is this inscrutability in God that in one sense God offers Christ. He, he pleads, he does not, Ezekiel, there's a verse that says he does not delight in the death of the wicked, but yet... God is not reacting to anything. He's wholly outside of it, and everything is happening according to his purposes, and he even has a purpose for hell, and it is, even though we can't fully place it all together, it is to put on display the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he's prepared beforehand for glory. And I just, I I read verses like that, and I say, God, I don't understand it all, I don't understand how this fits with your call to people to repent and believe and your sovereignty. I don't understand why you would need to do this. We all have those questions. Couldn't you have done it another way? But then we have to fall back and cover our mouths and remember that we are clay and he's the potter. What right do we have to tell the creator of the universe how he can mold his world? And so we humble ourselves under the just judgments of God. And we see these truths in Scripture. Uh, There's an offer of the gospel. Come, believe in me. When people don't, they're held culpable. But God is above it all. And he has his purposes. And he is glorified in the salvation and judgment of every human soul. So what should our response be to hell? Well, we should have a proper fear of the Lord. Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body, both soul and body in hell. Doesn't mean Jesus isn't calling us to be, like in a way, just scared of God as if he's some tyrant. But to have a proper reverential respect for our Father. And then secondly, we should have a deep burden for the lost and pray for and share the gospel with him. And this is my burden. This was kind of the, the, the dissonance I felt in my own soul as I was studying for this last couple of days, just like, oh gosh, these, Lord, if these things are true, I should just care more about the unsaved, quite frankly. And I think if that's you, then, then I want you to feel that repentance and chastening as well. All right, questions, questions. And let's keep it kind of brief because it is 7.30 and um, you may, if you have a speech for me, you can give it to me afterwards. But if you just have a brief question, we can do it right now. Anybody have a question? Yeah, go to the microphone because we're recording this. Um, first off, I appreciate you talking about hell. Um, I don't know, just encouraged by that in a strange way. Uh, my question is more on the requirements mm-hmm. of not going to hell. Mm-hmm. Um, 
how do we think about or how would what would be your response or, or engagement with somebody um, where obviously faith we we preach the gospel and we you know you have to have faith but how do we think about fruit yeah as a requirement mm-hmm. to entering the kingdom of heaven mm-hmm. and fruitlessness being a cause or not a cause but mm-hmm. you know one of the yeah reasons right for going to hell yeah yeah well that's a great question a couple things come to my mind um there are going to be varying levels of sanctification and fruit bearing and holy fruit bearing and holiness in in lives of christians i think of math or mark chapter four where jesus talks about the parable of the sowers remember he gives four types of soils that the seed of the gospel hits the first three are i believe unbelievers they might have appeared to be believers for a while but they ultimately did not take root and grow so i think they're unbelievers i don't think they lost their salvation i think they're unbelievers but he says of this fourth soil he says some will bear a crop of 30 60 90 or 100 so there's varying levels of fruitfulness and sanctification um i I think that the lord is gracious Uh, i think some of the old confessions of faith that talk about um, the love of God and a disposition to love him, even though we're struggling with things, are very helpful and encouraging. Um, and I think that's why God gives us a church community and a person that keeps um, uh, going back to sin over and over and over again. I think, I think I, I, that's why I love that quote like William Arnault, Arnault. The difference between, it's all about posture, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that one has sin and the other does not, but that the Christian is taking God's side against their dreaded remaining sin. And the non-Christian, who may be deceived and thinks that they are a Christian, is taking sin's side against God. What that, that's going to look different in different, different dispositions, different people that come from different backgrounds. Um, I, I, I just think we need to help each other fight sin. But I do want to say... That I, let's think about the thief on the cross. You know, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. What, what opportunity did the thief on the cross have to bear some sort of external fruit? None. But did the thief on the cross bear some fruit of faith? Yes. That, um, that moment of faith and love and trust in Jesus was faith. Now, the thief on the cross is there to encourage us that we're not saved by works, but there's only, it's only one instance, so it's very, very rare, so we can't count on it, but it's there because it's, 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 it's possible. And so I do believe in a deathbed, possibility of deathbed conversions, but I just think they're very, very rare. And so to answer your question, I think it's just the work of the local church for us to live together in a way of gospel seriousness where we fight against nominalism and we help each other understand that we can deceive ourselves. And that's just the work of the local church. That's why membership is important. That's why you've got to be connected, all those things. But I tend to take just kind of a generous view. I just think, I think a lot of people limp into heaven. I think a lot of people limp. I think actually all of us limp into heaven. Some of us are dragging, and some of us are just kind of, you know, not, not as much. But I think most of us limp into heaven. Yeah. Good question. But don't. But that can't be an op, that can't be like a, a an opportunity to like be okay with our sin too, right? So isn't there a balance there? You know, it's kind of like that's the Christian life. I just feel like I'm always walking on a road. I'm always falling off into this ditch, and then I'm going in. Like in one sense, I'm like I'm like veering off into legalism, 
And then as soon as I get my cart back up on the ditch, I feel like I'm falling off on the other side into antinomianism and, and you know, licentiousness. And it's like, stay on the road, stay on the road. And that's why I need all of you guys to help us all. Stay on the road, stay on the road. Because we're all veering all the time. Yeah. Anybody else? Any other questions? Yes, Jim. How are you doing? Um, when you said that about finite sin, uh, it made me think about if we have a proper view of God's holiness, <laughs> and only God really through the Holy Spirit can reveal to, yeah. to us his glory and his holiness, yeah. is there really such a thing as a finite sin? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. Yeah, maybe that was a wrong way to state that. Maybe better saying a sin in time. But the, the, that, that, that because God's holiness is eternal, there's a, there's a sense that that sin is against the holiness of God forever. And let's just admit, guys, I, I want to say this with like sympathy, not to, not to blunt the, 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 the reality of this doctrine, but just to, like, yeah, if you are wrestling with that, and this is the first time that you're encountering that, yes, this is a difficult thing, but, but, but the, the word of God and the wisdom of God is good and it's better than your preconceived human ideas of justice if you can if you can if you can hold on to that and trust that having faith to believe that's true even though you don't always feel like that's true that's not immaturity that's actually spiritual maturity to 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 know that there's dissonance in your heart emotionally as a human but there, there's a reality out there that's bigger and truer, and to still walk and hold on to it despite that gap doesn't mean that you're weak. It actually, I think, means that you're strong. And so if you feel that gap, man, keep walking into that and saying, Lord, here I am. I bring, I bring, I bring my, my frustrations. I bring my doubts. I bring my wondering about this, and I bring it to you, Lord. And I think that's the place to be. Dr. Love, Kansas hey. City Chiefs fan. Is there anything you would like to bring up? You brought that up. Is there anything you'd like to repent of before the whole congregation? Sure, on I, behalf, I sure don't. On behalf of your Kansas City Chiefs. No, I, it was a great game. Um, part of your story for the unregenerate. Yes, it was. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he, he, they beat the Chargers pretty bad Sunday. So it was. I mean, it was a, it was a good beating. Um, <laughs> part of your story, I think, you shared before, is your coming to faith story. Is your brother uh, share yeah. the gospel with you? Yeah. Um, I'm just curious if you have tips or uh, thoughtful ways that you would yeah. um, recommend sharing the gospel. How, what that looked like for you? Um, I'm burdened uh, just to share the gospel with my family, but yeah. it just costs a lot more. Um, curious yeah. if you have tips or, or ways yeah. that you. Yeah. Would. That's a great question, Dylan. And maybe we should do something on evangelism here soon. We did it a long time ago, but um, here's what I would just say: is in, in a general sense, is. Um, <laughs> My brother who shared the gospel with me was, was happy in the Lord. And more than anything he said to me, um, it was just evident to me. Um, and he, I can remember telling him once, uh, I remember exactly where we were in our childhood home. I said, I said no, Todd, I'm a Christian. And he goes, nah, no, you're not. No, you're not. And then he just kind of went on with, like, he just kind of, like, he was just, and he just assumed a kind of authority over my, like, no, you're not. But he was happy in the Lord. But here's, here's what I would say. Um, he was, even though he didn't have all these objections and airtight arguments for me, he just, he just 
talked about the need for free. He just brought the gospel to bear on my heart over and over and over again. And so then I would say that um, I think sometimes we make too much of evangelism and we, we think that you need to be aware of every argument, every sort of apologetic answer to every objection to Christianity. And I am not dogging um, uh, apologetics. I think that's a wonderful field to study. But there can be a way of so thinking that that's the way, like appealing to human logic and answering everything in a kind of scientific way, in a sense, theoretically, is how you will win the argument, which undermines the power and the authority of the word to just change hearts. It quickens hearts. And so do not, just don't diminish the power of the word, even when it's disagreed with or despised by your loved one. The power of that word spoken firmly but gently in love but with clarity and decisiveness, even without great explanation, can do the work. It's the word that does the work. And it's the simple sharing of the holiness of God, the sinfulness of our hearts, and the answer of Christ, and the need for trust in him. And if you have that, you, you have the sword of the spirit, and that's what does the work. And so I would just say, don't despise, for any of us that wrestle with evangelism, don't despise the fumbling, bumbling, very unsophisticated explanation of the gospel. That's what works. Um, so I don't know if that helps you, Dylan. We can talk more about that. Yeah. We can talk more about that later on. Yeah. Karen. Yeah. I, I don't think that the microphone's on anymore, but it was just a second ago for Dylan. Did you turn it off, Dylan? Okay. I can't find buttons. Yeah, it's on now. I just want to share a testimony. Uh, my husband came to faith on our 34th wedding anniversary. Oh, wow. I had shared the gospel every which way but loose. Yeah. And the answer I got every time was, mm. well, that's how, how you believe. Mm -hmm. But I'm a man of integrity. I believe that when I go before God, he will measure. And it was a works answer every time. Yeah. Uh, God took his health. And... The men of Society Hill, United Methodist Church, showed up time and again when we needed help. Mm. Um, he had myelodysplastic syndrome, so we couldn't have anybody come to the house. He was extremely weak. Um, one night at 9.30, we were stuck on the stairs. I couldn't get him up. Um, they were happy in the Lord. They showed the love of God by serving without expecting anything back mm -hmm. in return. Mm -hmm. Just showing up to help, um, not preaching at him, not doing anything. Um, he was brought to faith on our 34th wedding anniversary, and it was mm -hmm. a wonderful 13 months after that mm -hmm. because to see someone of advanced age, and my husband was almost 20 years older than me, so he was 80. And to have a hunger and a thirst to hear God's word. Mm. I mean, we read through the Bible in 10 and a half months. Mm -hmm. But even through that year, when we were pretty isolated, except going to John B. Amos, 
Um, there were things that happened. I mean, the electrical box fell off mm -hmm. that was holding up the heater and, mm -hmm. and just weird things that would happen that we would need help. Mm -hmm. And Francis had always been the person who helped other people, but he was in a situation where he received Christian men showing up to move the bed from one room to the other, to get it downstairs, whatever he needed, they showed up. Mm. And they were happy in the Lord. Amen. Praise God. Thank you for that, Carolyn. Anybody else before we... Angie. Yes, Fred. Can you just give a simple, I guess, explanation for somebody who might not understand people who have never heard the gospel? Yeah. And if they don't receive Christ, they're going to go to hell. Yeah. That's a great question. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm, I should have included that. I remember we talked about that um, some time ago, and that's a helpful thing to remind ourselves in. The question is, what about the person who has never heard the gospel, and what happens to them when they die? And the objection sort of raises in the heart of a person, well, is that fair? Um, it, w w what's the state of that person? Well, uh, the, I think we need to understand just the presuppositions, uh, the biblical theological presuppositions of the state of a human soul. I think sometimes woven into, implicit into that objection is, or that question, is that there is somehow innocent people out there, like the innocent islander that's never heard the gospel or the innocent tribesman. The, the Bible's clear there is no such thing as an innocent human. We are all born in sin. We are born... Ephesians 2, we're born as children of wrath. And then you go to Romans chapter 1, and it talks about how mankind has suppressed, even uh, mankind has suppressed the gospel, has suppressed the truth of God in defying God as a creator. And so even without the, the special revelation of the gospel, man has damned himself by rejecting the general revelation of God, and he's shaken his fist at God, and he's suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, which is enough to send us to hell. So people that have never heard about Jesus that die uh, are, go to eternity apart from him, um, which is why we need to send out more missions. And think about this. Think about, think about this. I remember hearing David Platt preach about this years ago, and I thought, man, I've never thought about that logic. But if, because somehow we might object, well, that doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem fair that this person who's never heard about Jesus would go to hell apart from him, which is, I think, the clear witness of Scripture, which is why we send missions. If, let's just entertain the thought that if people that have never heard about Jesus um, uh, and they die, then would they kind of get a pass and go to heaven? If that were the case, then the absolute worst thing we could do would be to send missionaries. Let's stop. And, and let's not tell anybody ever about the gospel because now we're just opening them up to the possibility of judgment. So don't do that. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says in Romans 10, how will they hear unless someone tells them? Implicit in that is that the only way is through Jesus. No one comes to the Father, Acts 4.12, but by Jesus. He's the only name under heaven which salvation is given. And so that's a very legitimate question, Angie, uh, but I would just want to equip our hearts with this idea that nobody's innocent. All mankind has rejected, rejected God and stands in a place of damnation, and 
Salvation is rescuing people, bringing them the message of Jesus. Humanity is running away from God, all of us. And God in his kindness is rescuing a great multitude from every tribe and tongue and nation and bringing them to himself. Any other questions? Yes, Dwayne. First, thank you yeah. for your very faithful and patient explanation on the topic. Yeah. Um, I want to know your doctrinal understanding of what happens to the young, yeah, newborns, children, question. those who don't, yeah. aren't mentally yeah. equipped to handle yeah. Yeah. or accept the gospel. Yep, that's a great question, Dwayne. Thank you for asking that. You and Angie both asked questions that I, th I, I wish I would have included in this. Um, yeah, I, don't, I think the Bible is relatively silent on that. Um, explicitly. Uh, there is an allusion to David losing his infant son in Second uh, Samuel, first Samuel, yeah, um, where he speaks about how uh, uh, he won't come back to me, but I will go to him. And so there's this thought that maybe we can piece that together. Um, maybe. Uh, I think that's pretty minuscule to sort of build like that is the, uh, that verse is the doctrine. But I will say that the overwhelming majority of people, leaders in the Christian church, I think all of the reformers, Calvin, Luther, Wesley, Spurgeon, virtually everybody, just looking at the character of God in the scriptures has surmised, and this has been, I think, the, by far the majority pastoral response to that question, is that uh, infants and young children who die before an awareness a moral awareness of their sin, and people that maybe have a mental disability are amongst God's elect. And I think that is my view, but I can't point to a Bible verse and say this is a proof text for that. So I say that with some, you know, with some humility. Um, but then I would just point to, you know, uh, where is it in, in, in Genesis where, where, where shall not the Lord of all the earth do right? So the Lord does right. But my, my certainly pastoral um, perspective and personal hope is that all those who die in that state are amongst the elect. Yeah. Anybody else have any questions on that? This will be the last one. Is that CJ? Yeah. Hey, Brad, my uh, question's just on like a healthy fear of the Lord because yeah. I feel like a lot of times like the enemy will uh, use like a uh, condemnation and just like conviction from the Holy Spirit to kind yeah. of drag you down and then you read yeah. like these verses yeah. in the Bible and then um, but also too you have one that like there's no more condemnation like yep. God's preposition to us is like love peace the intercession like yep. Yep. you yep. know and that wrestling of uh, yeah yeah, those, yeah. So. that's a great question I think it's just looking at the full counsel of God CJ it's like yeah there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus but also we got the book of James, Romans 8, this glorious gospel grace, uh, which is the chapter on justification. But then James spells out justification, gives us a more full-orbed view of all that's involved as the consequence of justification. James says, well, if you have this justifying faith that Paul heralds, praise God, we all believe that, then this is what it will look like. There will be some measure of, of, of fruitfulness in your life, getting back to Jeremy's question. And then we look at these, uh, you know, Romans chapter 8. He's Abba, Father, that we cry to him. But also he's, he's, he's a consuming fire in Hebrews. And he chastens those whom he loves. And don't despise the discipline of the Lord. 
because he's treating you as a son. And there have been times, I mean, it's like my, I could just hear, still hear, I'm 52 years old and not under the threat of a belt lashing from my father, but I can still hear him cracking his belt, you know, pop. You know, we don't, we don't do that much anymore. And anyway, maybe, the, maybe Jacob, we <laughs> want to try this out tonight? Jacob, you're a little big. You're a little too big for me to give a spanking to, but there's a kind of... And we see it in a, an example, it's, it's mirrored in a picture of a good earthly father, you know, a man who's not perfect, but who has a kind of authority that his children respect, and at times are chastened by and fear reverentially, but also love him and sit on his lap. And we all know that picture of a good father like that. On an infinitely grander scale, God is both and, you know, he's, he's those things. And so it's not all fear and all cuddly or all fear or all cuddly, it's, it's both. It's the Abba Father and the consuming fire, and it's this full orb, it's the whole counsel of God and who he is as he's revealed himself to us, and we need each other's help in finding, uh, in, in understanding that from the scriptures. So I'll pray, and let me, um, I'll stick around if you have any questions. Thanks for hanging in there on this difficult topic. Lord, uh, thank you for tonight. I just think about... Dylan's question of, of, of sharing the gospel with people that we love. Lord, this, this isn't just, it doesn't just hang up there in the clouds. Lord, this is real. Eternity is real for all of us in this room. I pray that if there's anybody here that doesn't truly know Jesus, it's maybe self-deceived that you would rescue them. I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't just let this be another little um, gym that we put in our, gemstone that we put in our little theological uh, knapsack, but that this would help us be people in a church that love you more, that, that feel more urgency. Lord, I'm convicted and I repent for my lack of evangelistic fervor at times. And if, if there's anybody in this room that feels that too, Lord, may they, may they also repent and be chastened. Lord, let the result of this be more holiness, more, more appropriate fear of the Lord and and more zeal for evangelism. Um, Lord, thank you for this time together. Encourage us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.